Well, would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your mercies. And we have sung of them. We are grateful that they are directed towards us. Your wrath could be. We were children of your wrath. But by your kindness, we are now children of God. Not by our own works, but by the grace and mercy of your work in us. And so we ask that that you would now give us the grace to hear your words with a renewed interest and and an even greater longing to obey them and to carry them out. And so would you help us through your Holy Spirit as we hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Paul's closing admonitions to the Corinthian church. So look, would you please, in chapter 16 at verses 13 and 14. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So this is the second part of a sermon that we began last week entitled, Remaining Faithful to Christ. Now there is certainly a sense in which these five admonitions, they would seem to fit within any one of Paul's letters. And, but some of these seem to reflect the situation that Paul has been addressing here to the Corinthians. And together, they really amount to Paul's summary appeal to them to remain faithful to Christ. There's two priorities that they must maintain if they are to remain faithful to Christ. Two priorities that we also must maintain if we are to remain faithful to Christ. We must adhere to the gospel that Paul preached to them. And we must love one another. We must adhere to the gospel and we must love one another. And Paul gave considerable attention to both the gospel and their relationships with one another in this letter. And so these first four appeals here in verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. They are all calling them to a watchfulness and a steadfastness as to the faith in a general sense. Right, to the faith in a general sense, but I would say to the gospel in particular. And recall how Paul began chapter 15, where Paul mentioned to them the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. The gospel that he preached to them, he says, it was of first importance, he said. You simply can't remain faithful to Christ without adhering to the gospel, which is the focus then of these first four admonitions. Now, there is one final admonition, right? There's five. So the first four are oriented towards adhering to the gospel. You remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel. But there's one final admonition, and it focuses on the relationships to one another. Paul tells them to let all that you do be done in love. Love is the one thing a church cannot do without. Without love, all of our attempts to serve, to use our spiritual gifts, they are all rendered useless. In fact, the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were so enamored with, he says they're they're all going to pass away. Right? Remember this was chapter 13. They're all going to pass away in the, in the life that is to come. But that's not all that's going to pass away. Faith is going to pass away. Hope is going to pass away. But love, the greatest of all virtues, love never will. Love remains. You can't remain faithful to Christ without loving one another. 
And so when you put all this together, we are to remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. That's the main point of what we're looking at here last week, this week, and then even next week. You, uh, you remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. So if you, hear, if you adhere to the gospel, but you fail to love one another, or if you love one another, but you wander from the gospel, you are not remaining faithful to your Lord and your Savior. You're drifting. And you're drifting dangerously away from Christ. You're drifting either in the direction of heresy or loveless religiosity. And it's time to repent. So just to give you a picture of, of how I've organized this sermon, I, I've, I've broken these five admissions down. I'm just making sure you see it all as I see it in my mind. I just want, I want you to see it, how this passage how these five admonitions are laid out. Broken them down into two primary applications by which you will remain faithful to Christ in this world. First, you adhere to the gospel. The first four admonitions explain what we must be doing if we are going to adhere to the gospel. We must be on, you must be on your guard. You must stand firm in the faith. And then you must be courageous and strong. The, the last two are lumped into that third point. Right? You must be on your guard, you must stand firm in the faith, and you must be courageous and strong. That's how you adhere to the gospel. The second application is to love one another, which obviously comes from the remaining admonition. Let all that you do be done in love. So I hope that's clear. I hope that's not too confusing, but that's where we're going. Now, if you're going to remain faithful to Christ, the first thing that you must do is you must adhere to the gospel because it's Christ's gospel. It's the only gospel. You will be loyal to it by being on your guard, standing firm in the faith, being courageous and strong. And so Paul is rallying the Corinthians. He's rallying us to a watchfulness, a steadfastness in the faith. So first, Paul says, you need to be on your guard. The way he says it is, be on the alert, in verse 13. Be on the alert. You know, we all have the tendency... To drift spiritually. Without any good reason, we all tend to think that we won't have any problem recognizing when something is spiritually dangerous. I'll recognize it. I'll see it for what it is. Really. Not if you're not on your guard. Not if you're, on the, not, if you're not on the alert. Not if you're sleeping and dull spiritually. You won't see it. You know, without... Do we have good reason to think that we'll recognize these things? Take the case of a young woman who approached a man by the name of William Grimshaw. He was an English preacher in the 18th century. She was expressing to him her, her admiration for a certain minister. This minister was gifted in talent, but he lacked grace. And so Grimshaw replied to her after she had gone on about this minister. And she said, Madam, I am glad that you never saw the devil. And she was kind of shocked by that. Why? And Grimshaw replied, Because he has greater talents than all the ministers in the world. I'm fearful if you were to see him, you would fall in love with him as you seem to have so high a regard for talent without holiness. Be careful that you not be led away with the sound of talents. Please do not allow the influence of novelty to lead you to desert the ministry under which God has put you. Remain where God has placed you and pray fervently that it may prove to you increasingly edifying, consoling, and instructive. You know, perhaps what we need to be most on guard against is insensitivity to sin in our life. The clearest indicator of spiritual dullness is when you become calloused towards sin that you once thought was unthinkable. I would never do that. And now you find yourself doing it. You can spot other people's sin a mile away, but you can no longer see your own. 
Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it, as, as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Has sin deceived you? Are you now caught up into some sin or are you contemplating sin that, that in the past you might have never imagined that you would be involved in? If you are, well, you're not alone. It can happen easily, especially if you're not on your guard. It's never too late, though, to repent. It's never too late to turn back to the Lord. Remember 1 John 1.9. Right, if I'm describing you, if you're caught up in some sin that, that before, earlier on in your Christian life, that you would have thought, I'd, I'll, I'll never be involved in that. And here you find yourself now. Remember 1 John 1, 1.9. It says, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, because you don't have to keep going in the direction that you're going. You're where you are because you were not on your guard. But you're fully aware of what you're doing now. It may seem like you have no choice, but you do. And so use your freedom in Christ to repent, to return to faithfulness to Christ. Now, that's what we covered last week. And I want to mention one more thing under this category um, It's another sign of spiritual dullness. And that would be a lack of regard for the Word of God. A lack of regard for the Word of God. Um, If you look back to chapter 4, verse 6. Paul there addresses them, he says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, now these things, brethren... I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. See, Scripture had warned them against boasting in men. And if you look back over the previous three chapters, you'll see that Paul quotes from the Old Testament on a number of occasions. All of those are warnings against boasting in men. And that's the these things that he's saying in in verse 6. He's saying, now these things, brethren, he's referring to these references to Scripture about not boasting in men. But they chose to do it anyway. And those statements from the Old Testament, those quotes from the Old Testament also mention how God's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Their boast should only be in the Lord. But in their pride, they they didn't listen to what Scripture says. And many in the church had become blind to their lack of regard for Scripture. See, the Scriptures are called the prophetic word. Meaning that they come to us from God by way of His authorized spokesmen. Who are called the prophets. These, These men, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, they took what God imparted to them, and they they wrote it down such that they wrote exactly what it was that God wanted. That's what you have in your Bibles. That's Scripture's testimony of itself. And that means this, that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. See, if if you disregard Scripture... You're disregarding God. Only a spiritually dull and foolish person thinks that they can disregard God and prosper from it or get away with it. And and see, this is this is what we're doing though whenever we sin, isn't it? Whenever we sin, that's what we're doing. We're setting aside God's word, we're setting aside God. For example, scripture says in Proverbs sixteen, verse twenty eight, it says, A perverse man spreads strife. And a slanderer or a gossip separates intimate friends. See, gossip is perverse. God says it causes strife. And that's what, that's what God says. And yet, when we're not on our guard, 
And when we disregard God and we participate in, let's say we participate in the gossip in the, in the, in the name of praying for the person, let's gossip about him so we can pray about it. See, when you do that, we're disregarding God. See, everyone, everybody knows that gossip is sin. Everybody knows this. Scripture tells us that gossip is sin. But here's how you know you're not on your guard. You set God's Word aside. And you participate in gossip instead of shutting it down, saying, hold on, hold on. We don't need to be talking about this. In Revelations 3, Christ wanted the church at Sardis to know something. Right? We're reading... Uh, through Revelations 3. So we've looked at these verses here as we've read it together in uh, our Sunday mornings. Here's what he says in Revelations 3. First three verses, he says, I know your deeds. That you have a name. That you are alive. But you are dead. You have a reputation of being alive. But you're dead. And he says, wake up. He says, Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. He's saying, look at you. He says, you you no longer remember what you received and you heard about Christ from His Word. And you need to wake up before it's too late. You need to repent. You need to start keeping God's Word. And he says, this. He says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come to you. See, if you don't wake up, God is going to come and he's going to come at a time when you least expect it and he's going to deal with you. He's not talking about the second coming here. He's talking about dealing with you. He's talking about coming unexpectedly, dealing with you because you won't wake up because you refuse to take matters seriously. And so this is how you know you're not on your guard. You're desensitized to sin in your life while being focused on other people's sin instead of your own. And you're disregarding the Word of God. You're acting like it doesn't apply to you. You don't see it, but others do. Now, maybe it's not some... Gross sin, like immorality. Maybe it's just bitterness, or meanness, or vengeance, or gossip. And you've just become desensitized to it. So because you're not on your guard, the deceitfulness of sin, it has lured you away from a faithfulness to Christ. But here's the scary question. Where is it leading you? So you've already desensitized yourself to these sins. These are the respectable sins. These are the sins that we can get away with in in our Christian walks. And nobody really comes down on us. Vengeance, gossip, bitterness, things like that. Meanness, things like that. You get away with stuff like that. But you're only there because you've desensitized yourself to sin. So what's next? What's next? I'll tell you what's next. Anything is next. Anything. If you, if you refuse to check yourself and instead you stay focused on the sins of others and how wrong you think they are while remaining blind to your own sin, then friend, there's no telling what sin you will do next. You're capable of doing anything. Proverbs 4.23, it says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. See, your heart and what it, de- what it desires, it will dictate the direction of your life. So be on your guard against your own heart's deceitfulness. Watch over it diligently. Return. Return to walking with Christ faithfully and diligently and carefully. You cannot remain faithful to Christ. You cannot adhere to His gospel if you're not on your guard and alert against sin. Now, secondly, if you are to adhere to the gospel, you must stand firm in the faith. 
stand firm in the faith. The faith refers to what you believe. This is not just, it's not your faith, it's the faith. You're to have a faith in the faith, right? Your faith is in the faith. But Paul is talking about standing firm in the faith. The faith refers to what you believe. It's the content of what you believe about Christ, about the gospel. But it's not just the content. It's not just the faith. It's your belief in the faith. It's the act of believing in the faith to be absolutely true. And both are in view here. The content of the faith and your trust that that faith is absolutely true. Content and belief. Both are in view. You know, some, some gestures are universal in that, for the most part, they, they communicate the same message, regardless of the culture. Like a smile. A smile. In any culture, it signifies enjoyment. might even signify expression, like, okay, okay. Something like that. So that's a, that's a universal gesture. What are the ones can we know of? Um, a shoulder shrug can also convey submission. You know, like, okay. But it can also be, I don't know. They're both universal. Anybody does that anywhere, you know what they're saying. There's variations, let's say, of how you tell someone to come here. If I look at you and I go, like that, you know what I'm doing. Of course, in some cultures that's offensive, so they might do it like this or like this or like this. But it's the same idea. Take your hands or your finger and you waggle it. It means, come here. I think Paul has just given us another universal gesture here in this admonition of stand firm in the faith. Right? If, someone, if someone comes up to you and they tell you, hey, step aside, and your response to that is, you know, you, you kind of stand like this. You plant your feet shoulder width apart and cross your hands, cross your arms. What am I saying? No. I'm not going to move aside. I'm going to stand firm right here. I'm not moving. That's the mental and the spiritual posture that Paul is calling each of us to have regarding the basic realities and truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Plant your feet mentally. Stand firm in the faith. Do not allow yourself to be moved spiritually. The statement here of Paul's, it's really just a condensed version of what Paul talked about in the entire last chapter, chapter 15. If you go back there again, I touched on this at the beginning, but let's just look here again with our own eyes. In 15, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. And then he goes into that gospel in the next few verses, that Christ died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to many. And then, jump now to the last verse of the chapter. He ends with a therefore, right? Because you have believed in those gospel facts about Christ and His resurrection and what they mean for sinners, he says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable. See, both are in view here. It's the content of the faith and the act of trusting. Believe the gospel and don't be moved from it. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said the same thing. You realize Paul repeats himself a lot? As you read through the New Testament, he repeats himself. Because these things need to be heard over and over and over again to us. This is what he said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul is telling them, you hold to the practices and the teachings about Christ's death and the resurrection that he taught. It's knowing that the gospel... And the hope of the gospel, they are all staked on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just as he told them in verse 14, back in chapter 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, 
Your faith also is vain. He repeats himself in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. But Christ did die for your sins. He was raised from the dead, which means what? It means the exact opposite of what he just said. Our preaching of Christ as Lord to the lost in this generation is not pointless. It's not a waste of breath. Putting your trust in Christ is the wisest thing that you can do. Your your certainty in the truths of the Bible is absolutely invaluable in a chaotic, immoral, pleasure-seeking, sin-loving world. Your justification before a holy and a righteous God is assured, not because of your works, but because your faith is in Christ as your substitute and your sin-bearer. This is the faith. This is the faith that Paul is calling you to firmly plant your feet in. Refuse to allow yourself to be moved from. You're a soldier in God's army. And Christ, the Lord, He's commanded you. He says, hold your ground, soldier. Do not retreat before the enemy. Paul is calling them to hold to what he taught them about God also back in chapter 8, verse 6. Look there. Chapter 8, verse 6. He says, For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through Him. And this one God, this one God is jealous. He is jealous for your affections. He doesn't want them to be enticed and drawn away to that which is not good, that which is not true, that which is not right, not pure, not lovely, not excellent, not worthy of praise. And for your sake, He forbids all forms of idolatry, all forms of sexual immorality, because they lie, they pervert, they destroy, they defile your faith. What is the, what is the context in which we are to stand firm in faith? You know, for the Corinthians, they were to stand firm in the faith of the death and the resurrection of Christ, while others were saying there is no resurrection. You stand firm. There was a resurrection. The Gospel's based on the resurrection. Your future hope is based on the resurrection. So even though there's people here saying there is no resurrection, you stand firm in the faith that there is a resurrection. What about us, though? There's many scenarios both in and out of the church in which we must stand firm in the faith. And some of those are going to be theological battles. But others are going to be cultural. For example, there was this performance the other night at the Grammys of a song called Unholy. Now, if you saw any of the headlines about this performance, they, all the headlines seem to share this common theme. It was something along the lines of Christians are having a meltdown over this, and they would put in quotes, satanic performance at the Grammys because it was an overtly satanic performance. I mean, the lead singer is dressed as the devil, you know, with the red horns and, and all that kind of stuff. So they, it's a satanic performance, and Christians are going crazy over it. Well, that, that probably reflects more how they would expect what Christians would, how they would respond to this performance because it was so overtly satanic. But was that really how true Christians are actually responding to this? I mean, did you have a meltdown over this? I did have a meltdown over this. I didn't, honestly didn't even know about it. You know, you have to watch the Grammys to see this thing. And I, <laughs> so, Oh, wow, you hear about this in the news. What are, the, what, is, what are they going on about? What are they saying I should be having a meltdown about? Is there really anything in the world today that should 
shock and surprise us when it comes to sin? Now, I've seen clips of this performance. I heard about it, and I'm like, what are they talking about? So I've seen clips of the performance. Maybe you've seen it. You know what I'm referring to. It's a celebration of debauchery and sin. And honestly, that's no surprise to me. I grew up in the MTV era. I watched the first MTV movie. I lived on MTV when I was in junior high watching all that. So I saw plenty of that same kind of a stuff, you know, just emerging and growing. So this performance, it's, it's not really any different than what Madonna did at the Grammys back in 1984 when she rolled around on the stage in a wedding dress and sang her song. I can't even say her song. You're older than 25, you know which song I'm talking about. Are Christians so shocked that what is celebrated and lauded by the world as art, as entertainment? Are we so shocked that we knelt down about this stuff? No. No, we're not. They're sinners, they act like sinners. I don't expect them to not act like sinners. I appreciate it, in fact, when they don't act this way, but I don't expect them to do otherwise. But if there's anything to learn from this cultural moment here, it's what this performance reveals about the state of the culture that we live in. I don't know if the song is anything that is especially, you know, new artistically or creative in some way to explain why this song made it all the way to the number one on the billboard charts back in October. Here's, I think, why it did. Because it was sung by a homosexual man and a transgendered man who went to great lengths to make himself look like a woman. I would not have known he was a man by how he looked. Perhaps what was most telling, though, was what CBS tweeted out before this performance. We're ready to worship. That was CBS's tweet. We are ready to worship. Now, do they think that they're worshiping Satan by the, watching this performance? Do, does CBS think that? Does anybody else think that? No. No, they, they, I'm not worshiping Satan. But, you know, that's their tweet. That's their sensational tweet. But at the same time, they are worshiping Satan. They, what they did in this performance is they made the connection between transgender ideology and Satanism blatantly obvious for everyone to see. See, since the beginning, Satan is a liar, he's a murderer, and his strategy is to undermine faith in God by instilling doubt. Doubt over God's goodness. Doubt in the goodness of God's creation. He made man male and female. He wants us to doubt God. To doubt that He is good. He wants us to think that God is withholding something from us that we need in order to be happy. He wants us to think that we're in charge. We have the, uh, we have the power to undo what God did. See, that strategy goes all the way back to the garden. It just adjusts and it morphs with the times. But the strategy, it it remains the same. So here you have a singer dressed up like he's Satan, singing about unholiness. In my day, it was heavy metal music where you had people dressed up like, well, zomp, I don't know what, you know, just monsters and singing about it. It was just, it all was just overt. Hedonism and rebellion, in, rebellion and Satanism, but not, you know, bow down and worship Satan. It's just right in line with what, what Satan wants. That's what I mean by Satanism. So they, here they are, you know, whether they're this performance or all the other performances before them, they're pretending like they're worshiping Satan, but it's for shock, it's for effect. But what most of them fail to understand is that Satanism is not a performance of a song by someone dressed in red wearing a hat with horns on it. That's not Satanism. Satanism is an ideology. It's an ideology that says God is not good. God's ways are not good. God is holding back what is good. 
God is a liar. You can change whatever you don't like about yourself, even your gender. Because God's not over you. You're over you. And that's what this song, and that's what transgender ideology promotes and seeks to challenge, the reality of God. Even, even reality itself. Something so basic as male and female. See, this was a performance that tells us about where our culture is at. Is it, is it any more shocking than, than past generations? You know what? It doesn't even really matter, does it? This is where our culture is at. And therefore, this is the cultural context in which you and I, and we must adhere to the gospel. So here you go, Christian. Here you go. Be on your guard. Hold your ground in Christ. Stand firm in the faith. And you may be thinking, you know, I really don't want to enter into this fight. I'd rather just let others fight and I'm going to enjoy my life as a Christian. I'm going to raise my children to love Jesus. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to enjoy fellowship. I'm going to listen to Christian music and lots of podcasts of my favorite preacher. I'll share the gospel when I can. I'll disciple others. And I'm going to try to convince others that that Christians and Christianity is a good thing. That's really all I want to do. And for you know what, I'll tell you, for the most part, that is what your life is going to be as a Christian. It's going to consist of those things. But God may have other plans for us. He just might. Because the battle lines are being drawn. Whether you like it or not, the battle lines are being drawn. The middle ground where, where we live and let live, that middle ground is shrinking. It's shrinking fast. You know, in the eight months since the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, the strategy of the radical political left, first of all, is to politicize everything. That's strategy number one. Let's just politicize everything. But the strategy is about eliminating neutrality. The mood of our culture is no longer that there is a legitimate differing position on certain matters. That's what's going away. On the issues our culture are consumed with, abortion, transgenderism, gay marriage. These are positions that are now framed in terms of good and evil. For example, if you're not completely for unfettered abortion access, without any limitations whatsoever, if that's not your position, you are an enemy of woman. There is no legitimate side than full acceptance. There is no room to disagree. And if you don't fall in line, you're not just wrong, you're evil. And you will be treated as an evil person deserves to be treated. That's the battle lines being drawn. So our culture is increasingly forcing people to choose the side that you're going to be on. There is no more middle ground. So do you know which side you're going to choose? And if you're going to choose the side of Christ, are you ready to stand firm in the gospel? You know, there's a small epistle almost at the end of your Bible by the name of Jude. It was written to Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem in the first century A.D., somewhere in the mid-60s. Jude was the brother of James and Jesus. And so in this short little letter... There is a very important message. Turn there. The book of Jude, right before Revelation. So like Paul, Jude was concerned about the faith. Because it was under attack from false teachers who were spreading dangerous heresies. And so he writes to them, and he says in verse 3, Beloved, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The Greek word that that Jude uses here, contend earnestly, it's 
It's often used to describe an athlete's intense striving to win the victory. Message Bible actually has a really great take on this. It says, fight with everything that you have in you. And you need to picture Rocky in the ring against Apollo and Clubber and Drago. And he's just going to take it all. He's, he's going to give it everything he's got. Right? He's going to not get knocked down. He's going to get back up. We are contending, though, for something far greater than a title belt. We're contending for the truth about the saving, about saving faith in Jesus Christ. So look at what Jude says, this, who, who this faith was entrusted to. It was handed down, he says, to all the saints, to the saints. Not just Christian leaders, the ones that you really like to be out there fighting the faith, fighting the good fight of faith, right? No, it's to all of us. We're all in this fight. We're all called to defend the gospel truths of Christ. And notice that the faith, it was handed down once for all. So in other words, we stand not only against those who seek to thwart it, but also those who seek to add new revelation to it. We contend for the full message of the truths already handed down from Christ through the Holy Spirit, first through the apostles, then down through the centuries to us. That's what we're defending. God hasn't stopped speaking to his people. He speaks to you right here. Here's the faith. Here's his word. It's a living word. It's living and it's active. You want to hear God's voice? Open up your Bible. Now, in a practical sense, what does it mean to stand firm in the faith? What does it mean to contend earnestly for the faith? What does this look like? Well, thankfully, Jude gives us four marching orders. He gives us several disciplines that show us what it means to contend earnestly and to stand firm in the faith. So if you're going to stand firm in and contend earnestly for the faith, then you must first of all build yourself up in the faith. Look at verse 20. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So you, Christian, must press on towards spiritual growth. You must do this. No one can do this for you. huge part of your spiritual growth, of course, as I've mentioned several times and will mention several more times, it includes reading and studying God's words so that you know and understand it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's what we want to do when we defend the faith and stand firm in it. We want to know how we want to be accurate about it. God, through his word, he teaches, he trains, he rebukes, he corrects us in righteousness. So that the servant of God is fully equipped and adequate for every good work. And so you must discipline yourself to regularly take in God's word through reading it and studying it. And this is so fundamental to your life as a follower of Christ. This is where you begin. This is where you stay. This is what you never depart from all your days. Reading and studying the word of God. Another fundamental discipline that you must develop in light of um, building yourself up in the faith, is you, you should be regularly attending the gatherings of the church to hear the word preached and taught and sung. Paul tells us, look at Ephesians 5.18 real quick. I just want to highlight this and, and show us that, you know, when, when we gather here and when we, when we sing, there is more going on than just lifting up, you know, voices in praise to God. Look at what's going on. Verse 18, Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. See, we know that when we gather, when God's people gather, whether it's here or home fellowship groups during the midweek, other occasions, right? We sing. God's people sing. We make melody with our hearts to the Lord. But notice that Paul says there's something else happening as we sing to the Lord. He says we're speaking to one another. We're speaking the same glorious gospel truths to one another. As we sing God's praises, as we thank Him together for His amazing grace towards us, God is knitting our hearts together. He's knitting them together in joy for our common salvation. 
He's imparting to our hearts the strength and the courage that we need for our common fight. I want to hear your, jo- your voices joined with my voice. I want to hear your voices over my voice. That's what I want to hear. There's nothing more glorious than to hear your voices singing along with mine. So sing out. He's our glorious, victorious, soon returning King. Lift up His praises. Sing it loud. Most of all, though, even if you're not going to sing it loud, sing it with me. It's one way that we say to one another, this glorious Christ is my King too. I'll stand firm beside you in these glorious truths come what may. A third discipline, and I'll just mention this briefly, I would encourage you to read solid Christian books. They're teachers that God has provided to build you up in the faith. And so, in light of this brief statement, I I put together a list of ten verses. Well, I didn't put it together. Tim Challies put it together. And I grabbed it. And I put it here. So if you're like, well, I wonder what I should be reading. Because there's a plethora of books. More books than you have time to read. What ten should I focus on? Here you go. It's up here. You can grab it afterwards. Second, in addition to building yourself up in the faith, you must pray in the Holy Spirit. Again, look at verse 20. Back to Jude 3. Sorry, back to Jude 3. And he says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith. And then he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. So this is not some special kind of prayer. It's simply praying according to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. See, the Bible is your prayer manual. The Bible is your prayer manual. You want to know what to pray about? Read the Bible. It tells you what to pray about. God's revealed His will to us in His words so that we would know what we are we should be asking God to accomplish. Didn't Jesus say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Right? We can say that and mean it and that's wonderful, but here God's really laid out for us what his will is that we can ask to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For example, is it God's will that you make disciples? Yes, he says, even to the ends of the earth. So pray that you would be making disciples. Pray that our church would be making disciples. Why? Because it's God's will. Pray in light of that. Is it God's will? Is your sanctification God's will? Yes, in fact, it's really explicit in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You should be asking God for that several times throughout the day. Given that we have entertainment like what was on the Grammys going on. That's going to catch your eye. You should be asking for God to help you. To help your church. To stand firm. Contend earnestly for the faith. Right? This is His will. So as we pray in the Holy Spirit to do God's will, we receive help in our weakness. To understand God's truth. To not be deceived by false teachers. And to have courage in the fight. The third way to stand firm in the faith is keep yourself in God's love. Verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So staying in God's love, it means living by faith and obedience to God. That sounds you know, really general, doesn't it? But it's not. It means don't take your obedience to God lightly. This ties in with what I was saying earlier. Every time you choose... Not to obey God, whether it's in public or in private. You are distancing yourself from God's love for you. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. See, obedience begins long before that moment of testing of your obedience. It begins long before that. If you want to obey when the moment of testing comes... You don't just wait for that moment. You won't be ready. 
Your commitment to obedience and abiding in God's love, it begins with your commitment to the first two things we talked about. Building yourself up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Both of these instill within you the conviction and the strength that you need to face the many tests to your obedience and your allegiance to Christ as you in, that you're going to encounter throughout every day. It's not grit and determination that's going to make you in that moment obey your God. You obey God because He's captivated your heart. He's won your allegiance by His love. That's how you obey when the time of testing comes. Romans 6, 17. This is Paul. He says, But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's where your obedience begins. It begins in the heart. A heart that's captivated by the glory and the beauty and the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And that's why you go back to the first two points. Perhaps the ultimate expression of your obedience to God is shown through you loving others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter said this, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Show your love for Christ by how you choose to love your brother or your sister in Christ. Not gossiping about them, not slandering them, not judging them, not ignoring them, not resenting them, but serving them and praying for them and greeting them and encouraging them in their faith. And then lastly, Jude says, wait with hope. So as you keep yourself in the love of God, he says, verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You cannot stand firm in the faith unless you keep hope alive in your heart. When Jude says to wait for the mercy of our Lord, he's referring to living every moment with that confident expectation that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. We talked about this last week. As Paul told, Paul told Titus, we are to be living every day looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So cultivating that outlook, it is essential to you being on your guard and standing firm in the faith. On December 8th, in the year 1414, John Huss, he was imprisoned for his teaching about Christ, and he was waiting for trial, and then his execution, which was burning at the stake. And during this time, he wrote a letter to a friend. And so, as I close, let's make this together. This is his prayer. Let's make it our prayer. Let me read it. And you pray along with me. Our most, and I'm praying so the band can come up. O most faithful Christ, draw us weak ones after Thee. For we cannot follow Thee if Thou dost not draw us. Give us a strong mind that it may be prepared and ready. And if the flesh is weak, oh, help us by Thy grace and accompany us. For without Thee we can do nothing. And least of all can we face a cruel death. Give us a ready and willing spirit, an undaunted heart, the right faith, a firm hope, and perfect love that patiently and with joy we may for Thy sake give up our life. Amen.